continuing our journey through the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and as we're going on this journey, we're walking through some of the key phrases of the Reformation, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, and Christ alone. And as we've been doing this, we've also been tracing the life of Martin Luther himself. And as we've been going on that journey, we discovered that early on when he was still a student, that he was caught in this horrible storm. He cried out to God, if you'll save me, I'll become a monk. And he was spared from that storm and ended up becoming a monk. And no matter how religiously motivated and devoted that Martin Luther was, the anxiety, the angst of his life never melted away. He even went on an incredible pilgrimage to Rome, and instead of being inspired there, he was so disenchanted by the corruption of what he saw, he, on his knees, penance, all the way up the steps of Caiaphas, got to the top, and is like, what if this, what if this isn't true? What if it doesn't work? returned back home and had his breakthrough moment while reading Romans chapter 1, that the righteousness of God was not this hand of God waiting to punish us, but actually the love of God waiting to redeem us. And so we get this amazing phrase that comes from the Reformation, that we are saved by grace through faith. And in week one, we talked about faith. And then last week, we talked about grace. In order to do that, we talked about saintly relics. We talked about private masses. And we talked about papal indulgences. If you didn't get to hear that message, it was scintillating. I mean, I got to tell you, pretty exciting stuff in there. But all of those things, what Luther was arguing is that the grace of God got lost in the shuffle. And so what we're beginning to discover is that when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, that he was protesting against something. He was protesting against the loss of the grace of God, and he was hoping to renew and to recapture the gospel in our moment in time. This week, we're going to talk about Scripture alone. And in doing that, I know immediately as soon as we say that, it's hard for us to do the mental gymnastics that's necessary for us to be able to go back in time to see the Bible the way that they viewed the Bible during the life of Martin Luther. When we think of the Bible today, this is an image that comes to mind. We think of a readily accessible book. It's in every hotel room. It's in most of our homes. In fact, the average American, if you have a Bible in your home, you have three Bibles in your home. And so we have Bibles all around us, but this is what the Bible was like back during the life of Martin Luther. It was a very rare book. It was considered to be an heirloom. Families didn't own Bibles as much as they were, you know, kind of locked up, chained up in churches or um, as a part of a monastery. In fact, this is an image here up on the screen of a library that still preserves the books in the same way that they would have been preserved during the life of Martin Luther in the 16th century, that the books were literally chained up so that they couldn't walk away because they were so incredibly valuable. All of that changed when in the middle of the 15th century, in the 1450s, uh, this invention came and just rocked the medieval world. This is known as the printing press. I want to show you a picture of my wife learning how to work on the printing press. I told her that she should spend some time like learning how to code apps or do something relevant, but she's kind of old school and she likes to do these ancient and barbaric things. She likes to read on paper. It's really bizarre. I don't, don't quite understand it. But the printing press was an absolutely revolutionary invention. 
Uh, there's a historian by the name of Ben Sass who, who says that he calls it the kind of the change of the millennium, that there was the most significant thing that happened in the last thousand years. How did the printing press actually change us? Well, let's just talk a couple of quick ways that the printing press changed things. Uh, books went from being expensive to being affordable. Uh, that information now was kind of disseminated in a slow manner. Now everything came more quickly. Uh, the goal of knowledge was to preserve knowledge kind of in the medieval world. And now it was all about getting knowledge out, transmitting the knowledge. Um, it, everything was pretty much written in the same language in that part of the world. Uh, Latin was the language of the church and it was the language of the academy. Even though nobody really spoke it, it was the language that they used for all of the books. And now people started to read things in their local dialect and in the vernacular. And society went from a pre-literate society to a literate society. Did you know that Calvin's Geneva, of which that's the origin of the Presbyterian church, was the first community by which there was compulsory education for children in order to teach them to read? And they did this because they wanted the children to be able to read the Bible. And so think of the different ways that society changed as a result of this one invention, that it changed economics, it changed time, it changed information flow, it changed communication, and it changed education. There's virtually no aspect of your life or mine that has not been altered by what Gutenberg did in 1454. And then by 50 years after Gutenberg, at that point, you have a thousand different printers in 350 different cities with the capacity and yield of 10 million books. All of that happened in a generation. Imagine how much that changed thing. And so you can imagine that Luther, when, when he was watching this happen before his very eyes, he said that printing was one of God's highest and extremest acts of grace. Well, why did Luther think this way? It's because he was a part, he was swept up in this revolution. Now, a lot of people think that the nailing of the 95 Theses was the defining moment, and it was a, a critical moment in the life of history as well as the Reformation. But when Luther posted the 95 Theses, did you know that he did so in Latin? And that he did so because he wanted to create a church and an academic conversation about the practices of the church. So he didn't even post it at the door of the church in a way that the average person could go up and read it. So the first thing that really got published was not actually the 95 Theses, it was actually this. This was a, a sermon that Luther printed, or Luther preached and then got printed in German on indulgences and grace. This was basically the first New York Times bestseller of that portion of the world. And not only was it written in German, it was also written with pictures. There were images that were associated with. This was absolutely critical because a lot of people couldn't read back then, but they could treat this kind of like a cartoon and they could follow along and get the main points of what was being said because they could follow along with the illustrations. Luther didn't receive a single royalty from anything that he ever wrote. And the images were critical because there was a famous artist in Wittenberg at the same time by the name of Cranach. And Cranach took images like this where he painted Luther and they used sketches of Luther and everybody knew what Luther looked like. This was amazing. Luther was basically the first 
reality celebrity. The only people that you knew exactly what they looked like who were famous were people who were like kings and queens and they could afford to put their likeness on the currency. And so you could, if you had a coin, you knew who was in charge. But when printing became cheap and Luther started publishing his books and his sermons, all of a sudden you had his image, his likeness on those things. And so everybody knew who Luther was. He became famous. Well, what happened at this moment in time is is that there became this deep hunger to learn of what Luther had to say. It was really resonating with the people. At the church at the same time was, was trying to repress what Luther was saying, trying to stop the printing of what he was saying. And yet it went viral and they couldn't stop it. And the more that the church tried to stamp it out, the more direct and outspoken that Luther became. And he became incredibly verbose and prolific during this period of time. And there came a point where all the conflict came to a head. And there's this famous moment in the life of Martin Luther that's at a place called the Diet of Worms, which sounds absolutely disgusting, does it not? It's not like the South Beach diet or the Atkins diet or the caveman diet. The diet of Worms, diet was a a term that just meant assembly. So there was this assembly of leaders and Luther was summoned there against his free will in order to answer for what he had written. So in this famous painting on the diet of Worms, you see Luther standing with his hand on the books that he has written and he was asked to recant. Luther wanted to have a very uh, kind of a detailed debate about what he had said because Luther was the kind of person who said, if somebody can show me with the plain sense of Scripture where I have erred, I will be the first one to recant of what I have written. But nobody could show him because he was speaking biblical truth. And so he was asked at the Diet of Worms to recant or else And then you've probably heard this famous speech that Luther said when he said this. He said, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. May God help me. Amen. And the may God help me part was really important at the end because what Luther was doing when he was refusing to recant is that he was being excommunicated from the church and a price was being put on his head. That somebody could kill Luther without recrimination from the state or from the church herself. So Luther became a wanted man. And as he's leaving to go back to Wittenberg, uh, somebody captures Luther. It's kind of like a made-for-TV movie moment. And Luther at first doesn't know if the good guys have captured him or the bad guys have captured him. But they dress him up as a knight and they take him to this place, which is the Wartburg Castle. If you ever get to walk in the footsteps of Martin Luther, this is the kind of the greatest thing that you get to witness, this unbelievable castle where Luther was sequestered away for the better part of a year. And not only do you get to walk the grounds, you also get to go inside and see the very room where Luther stayed hidden away so that no one would know where he was. But while Luther was here, he went through a kind of personal, emotional, spiritual, physical crisis. He, he suffered with some terrible health issues while he was there. In addition to that, he had kind of a crisis of vocation. He was so used to being at the center of everything and this movement of the gospel and the reformation that was taking place in his moment in time. And now he's on the sideline. 
And he also thought that the demons that he had combated, the darkness, the fears, when he encountered the grace of God for the first time, that they came roaring back. And so what did Luther do with all the time he had locked away in this castle? In 11 weeks, he translated the New Testament from Greek into German. What do you do with your spare time, huh? <laughs> A remarkable achievement that not only made the Bible accessible to the everyday person, but also he actually was taking the different forms of the Germanic language and he really created modern German language with that one translation. And cooked up in that tower, Luther said this, if we do not love God and his word, what difference does it make if we love anything at all? So let me pause from this history lesson to ask you a very nosy and personal question. Do you love the word of God? And if so, the way that we see you treat your Bible, would we be able to tell? Many, many years ago, our family used to live in the New York City area, and while we were there, there was this organization that we partnered with that was called the Concerts of Prayer Greater New York. Fantastic organization that was involved in church planting, uh, spreading the gospel in New York City. And did you know that um, at the time, two-thirds of all of the pastors in the New York City area had no formal training in ministry? Two-thirds of the pastors. Now, my formal training has never done me any good, but I find that it's helpful to others. No, I mean, it's just an incredible privilege to have been given the moments to be able to study and to learn and to grow. And many of those pastors would love to have the opportunity to be able to learn in community and have never had the chance to do so. So this, this kind of gala that we were a part of, this fundraiser with this organization was there to help raise awareness for the training of pastors in new churches. So we're at this fantastic New York event in the grand ballroom of an unbelievable hotel, and everybody had donated kind of all of these different uh, kind of items that were going to be raffled away for the evening. And there was some really cool stuff, like a romantic dinner for two at the Water Club, which is at the, the base of the Brooklyn Bridge on the Brooklyn side with the most incredible nighttime view of New York City possible. There was going to be breakfast for four in the Rainbow Room at the top of Rockefeller Center. There was also um, a, a home in Nantucket, a weekend getaway at this home for you and some other close friends. For, uh, there was another one that was like a long weekend to Bermuda. And then there was one other one that was a week-long Caribbean vacation. And this was in the dead of winter. So this sounded amazing, a Caribbean vacation in the dead of winter. I mean, all this was fantastic. And they're going through all the different prizes and they're building up. Like each of the prizes is bigger and bigger and bigger. And they're like, okay, and now we've got the grand prize. Now, the way that they did this is that you could buy uh, tickets in order to support the organization. And people were there buying a whole lot of tickets and um, I could only afford one ticket. So I had my one ticket that was in front of me. And, uh, and what they would do is they would call your ticket number up and then they would tell you what the prize is. Because they wanted, it was like a TV show where they wanted to see your reaction to the prize. So um, they're, they're like, okay, now we've got the grand prize. And I've got my ticket. 
and every single number, I mean, I'm tracking. I am right there. And you get to the very last number and it's, and it's me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm so excited. I'm fist pumping in the air. The light spotlight turns on me. I'm walking up there to the stage. I'm ready to get, I mean, what's going to be better than a Caribbean vacation? It's like a car or something. It's going to be awesome. And they're like, we're going to give you the grand prize. The grand prize. I brought it with me. Would you like to see it? Would you like to see it? Thank you. I'm kind of invested in this story here. Go with me, people. This was the grand prize. A new King James study Bible. Now, I'm a pastor. I've got like 15 of these. So I'm kind of like, can I have the second place prize? But they were very serious. They're like, this, this is the grand prize. It's why we're all here. Now, one of the things you need to know about me is I have the worst poker face on the planet. You would take all of my money. And because uh, what, what is inside of me is outside of me. Like you can always tell what I'm thinking. And so here I am in front of all of these people. I'm a pastor. You've handed me the grand prize as a Bible. And you can tell, I'm like, I'm disappointment and, I'm disappointment and upset. Is, is on my face. They even hand me the microphone to say something and I speak for a living and I got nothing. I just like, it's like a bad Oscar moment. I'm like, thank you. And I sit down and I'm carrying the Bible back to our table and, and I can feel its weight and I can hear the Holy Spirit in the back of my mind just whispering into my soul, Rich, do you believe that this is the grand prize? Isn't this more important than a Caribbean vacation? And the honest answer was in that moment in time, that that moment had revealed for me how little I prized his word. Why do we do that? Why do we neglect his word? Well, the Apostle Paul and a passage that Martin Luther deeply loved, a passage in scripture, on scripture, says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's two things in that passage as to why we have a tendency to not prize God's word. Instead of it being God-breathed and useful, we see it as dead and irrelevant. Let's talk about these couple of phrases here really quickly. All scripture is God-breathed. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter two, God forms Adam and Eve out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathes into their nostrils the breath of life. In other words, God is the source of life as well as the animator, the activator of all life. And then by the time you get through the scriptures, you see that the Holy Spirit, the term for the Holy Spirit in the Bible is the word for breath. And that when Jesus has the disciples in the upper room and they're afraid because he's died and they don't know what to do and he comes and he appears to them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And it, and it says that he breathed on them. 
C.S. Lewis illustrates this so well in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe book that there's the great lion Aslan, who's the lion of Judah. He invades the white witch's castle and all of the frozen statues from all the different people that she's frozen in life. Aslan comes up to each one and breathes on it and it comes back to life. And then there's precious Susan who is so afraid. And he says to her, Susan, come near to me. Let me breathe on you. Martin Luther put it this way, and this might be my favorite Luther quote, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Do you see this as some sort of lifeless, dead, historical book gathering dust or do you believe that it's alive through God's own spirit first God breathed and then the second term that second Timothy uses is that the word of God is useful it's beneficial it's helpful one of my favorite Bibles that I cherish in my office is this little Bible right here. It belonged to my grandmother on my mom's side of the family. It belonged to Evelyn Clark. And it's old and it's tattered. And one of the reasons I cherish it is that I'm able to open it and I'm able to look at the notes that she wrote in the column to be able to see what she underlined, what she really thought and maybe sometimes what was going on in her life. But there's another reason I cherish this book. There's a little piece of paper that I found in this book, and this little piece of paper has some notes on it, and it says this. It says, air leak and lines so that when idling, fuel lines to tank and carburetor, pressure on tank and to see where the leaks are, bad fuel pump, power steering leak, return line. Does it say that anywhere in your Bible? <laughs> Why do I love this? because it tells me that she carried it with her even when she went to the mechanic. And you don't carry something with you that isn't useful for you. Do you carry God's word in your life? In your purse? In your man purse? In your briefcase? In your satchel? On your phone? and your heart. She carried the word with her. And she had a humble spirit to say that, God, this is useful for me, and I will study it. Martin Luther put it this way, the Holy Scriptures require a humble reader who shows reverence and fear towards the word of God and constantly says, teach me, teach me, teach me, for the spirit resists the proud. Some of you don't read your Bibles because you're too proud. 
You don't think it has any bearing or relevance to your life. And so I think in today's world, many of our Bibles are as chained up as they were during Martin Luther's day and age. But I don't think that they're chained up because of a lack of technology. I actually think they're chained up because of maybe too much technology. For maybe for us, when we think about the Bible, we think of it as kind of too cheap and that their lives are too hurried and that the Bible is too neglected and it's too taken for granted and that we've become illiterate. It's not that we don't know how to read anymore. It's that we just don't read anymore. We know how to. We just skip right over it. Martin Luther took a stand in 1521. And with that stand, he was staking his life on the word of God. And he did so so that you and I might be able to hold this in our hands and on our lives. And I wonder, because at some point you're going to be asked to take a stand on the Word of God in your life, that you're going to be asked, and it might not be as dramatic, it might not seem as big of a deal as when Luther took his stand, but it's just as important, and eternity hangs in the balance. And so take it with you, it's useful. Read it. It's alive. And let's pray. Our gracious and loving Father, we confess that we have neglected your word and we are too proud to read it. Quite honestly, we don't prize it. We don't see it as important or helpful. It's dusty, old, and dead, and so God, we keep it all chained up safely put away. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will begin a movement of empowering your people once again to hold your word, to cherish it, to love you through it. Thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us. And so breathe into us now, God. Animate not only this book, but our lives, that we might encounter you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.